My name's Rocky Calavita. First of all, I got the nickname from Rocky Calavita. My real first name is Henry. When I went to Virginia Tech in, in the fall of 59, I met all these new people. Soon as they heard Calavita, they said Rocky. And I said, thank God I don't have to be Henry anymore. <laughs> and there's his, there's his card. Okay. Now, what influenced me? I don't know where I got this from. It's a recruiting brochure for Army Infantry. Uh, look at it, it's pristine. I looked all over for a date. There's no date on it. But believe me, I have had this thing for decades. Well, I told my wife when I'm gone and in my box, this is one of the things I want her to slip in there with me. In 1965, U.S. units started going to Vietnam. It was picking up before that, all right? So when I was a second lieutenant, I had already picked my preference for branch at, at my college, Virginia Tech, and uh, uh, branch and assignment. Now, between the junior and senior year in ROTC, everybody has to go to a, a, a summer camp. And it's not where you learn basket weaving or anything like that. It was on a military installation, and it was going to be supported by uh, actual troops. I went to the uh, Fort Bragg 82nd Airborne. They were our support troops. While I was there, I knew I wanted to be infantry, but I realized when I'm surrounded by paratroopers and rangers, to be the complete infantry guy, you need to be airborne and you need to be a ranger. So uh, when I got back to Virginia Tech, you know, I picked my preference for infantry and uh, I got what I asked for. So that my summer camp was at Fort Bragg with all the airborne guys. And uh, that really inspired me, not just to be infantry, but to be all three, airborne infantry ranger. So I reported to Fort brag uh not not qualified for anything and that's what the company commander i was assigned to told me he said when you've been to jump school i said not yet <clears throat> how about ranger school not yet how about basic not yet what am i supposed to do with you said he so anyway so for the first few days uh that i was assigned to the 82nd uh, i uh they gave me time to go to the laundry or the cleaners and get fatigues, get a name tag made and all that stuff. And I did, I went and I, I took my brand new fatigues that were, they had the name tag and the patches, the lieutenant bar and all that stuff. And I took it to the cleaners to get all that stuff sewed on. And the lady said, well, you want these laundered, don't you? And I said, of course not, they're brand new. And that was really stupid because in the 82nd Airborne, you wore fatigues that were so starched you could cut yourself on the crease in, in the pant leg. So anyway, I got, I got all that squared away and I finally got back to uh, uh, reporting to the battalion. And uh, you know, nobody said, what are we supposed to do with you now? But it was worse than that. When I drove up to the barracks in the morning, from the upper windows of the barracks, people would say, here comes a goddamn leg. You know, a leg, a leg, a leg. Leg is to the airborne as anybody who's not a jumper. So I couldn't wait till I got to jump school to get that stuff behind me. And fortunately, it wasn't too long before I went. I jumped in the car, drove down to Fort Benning and signed in, student battalion. First school was going to be Ranger, even before infantry basic. And I was glad for that. Airborne was three weeks. The first week was uh, just like learning to do a parachute landing fall. 
It was uh, the mechanics of how not to hurt yourself when you jump out of an airplane at 800 feet. Now, oh, then you're going out of the yeah. aircraft? I don't know why I brought Spitshine Corcoran jump boots to Vietnam with me, but I had them, so I wanted to take that picture. I jumped out, the chute opened, I put my camera over the reserve and took a picture. I took it down to Saigon to get it framed, and he say, said to me, why you lie on ground, take a picture of your feet. <laughs> in the, the first week is uh, uh, ground week. That's where they teach you to do the parachute landing fall, show you how if you're oscillating, you want to roll up on, on the right side of your body if that's the way you're leaning, or the left side if that's the way you're leaning. And then the, uh, the other thing I remember from the first week was something called suspended agony. You're in the parachute harness. It's attached to something in the ceiling. And so the purpose of that drill was to try to learn how to grab the risers and, and make the parachute, you know, push you the way you wanted to get pushed. And, uh, you know, that was, that was almost a waste of time because you could not really steer the T-10 parachute. It dropped down where it wanted to go. But uh, the second week was tower week, okay? Starts with a 34-foot tower. It was the, a simulated airplane up on telephone poles. And uh, you'd go up there, and that, that's where they start to teach you. Slap the side of the airplane, jump out of the damn airplane, don't just wimp out of the airplane. And uh, that was pretty tough because uh, when you jump out of that 34-foot tower, you're actually attached to a pulley that's attached to a cable and you're going to ride down the end of the cable to a berm where your classmates are going to unhook you and then you're going to stay there and wait for the next jumper. Uh, actually, the simulated opening of the parachute when the slack came out of that uh, trolley was actually worse than the actual uh, effect when the chute opens up in a real jump and uh, students could be easily identified if they didn't, if they were wearing a shirt and weren't wearing a shirt by the blue purple bruises on their shoulders from the harness of the, pa of the parachute. So anyway, that wasn't bad. Got through jump week, uh, that, and then tower week, the 34 foot tower, then the 250 foot towers. Uh, they were the real deal. There's three of them. If you're driving to Fort Benning from anywhere outside, the first thing you'll see of Fort Benning are those jump towers. There's three of them. Two of them are the real deal. One of them is like for uh, visiting dignitaries where they're actually going up on a cable uh, and, coming and, and sitting in a bench or something that comes down. We didn't have anything to do with that. Uh, what you would do with the 250 foot towers when, when it was your turn, the, 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 I'm trying to remember now, that the canopy was already spread around and, and locked onto a, a, a steel ring that's the same you know, circumference as the parachute. And what they would do then is hoist you up almost to the top of the tower and then so we didn't have people coming down at the same time when it was your turn boom they lift you up a couple more inches and then you're coming down on a parachute the real deal you got to do a parachute landing fall and uh, do it everything right so you don't get hurt and then the last thing of course was uh, jump week it was uh, total of three jumps is all you had to make the first jump was at a drop zone actually in across the Chattahoochee River in Alabama. And, uh, you know, they were talking about uh, the reserve parachute. All I remember from the reserve parachute class was 
in the unlikely event that you have to pull it. Okay, it's an unlikely event. So anyway, on the first jump, I got myself in the front of a stick. A stick was all the troops lined up, sitting on the bench seat and uh, both sides of the airplane. And I said, I'm an officer, I'll show these kids what to do. And when it was my turn, I got in the door, I slapped the side of the airplane and I jumped out. And then I looked up and then I looked back down because when I looked up, I had two canopies. It's a malfunction called a Mae West. It looks like a giant brassiere. That's why they called it Mae West. But you get a shroud line over the canopy. And so instead of having a big canopy wide open, you got two smaller ones, okay? Now, I remember they told us in class, in the unlikely event that happened, you wanna pull your reserve anyway, because if that nylon shroud line on the nylon canopy rubs off, it's gonna burn up and you ain't gonna have a canopy at all. So, okay, time to pull the reserve. And uh, I didn't pay attention in class. The reserve is in a pack. It's got four flaps, a bottom one, a top one, and two side ones. And when you pull the handle, these pins unleash those flaps. What I should have done, they told me afterward, you don't just, you know, have your hand on the front of the thing. You need to have your hand under the parachute pack so when you pull it, the parachute doesn't drop straight down and then wind up around you. My parachute dropped straight down and wound up around me. So I'm wrapped in my parachute now. I don't know how fast I'm coming down. I don't know where I am. And I hear a megaphone uh, voice telling me, relax your knees, bend your knees. I thought I must be pretty close to the ground. And I hit it pretty hard and it knocked the wind out of me. But at least I wasn't dead. And uh, ambulance came across and all that. And by the time they got me off the drop zone, I had actually you know, recovered and I was breathing okay again, so they didn't have to do anything more to me. And then after that drill was over, we went back to the barracks to get ready for jump number two the next day. I had technicolor dreams of me splattered all over Alabama that night. <laughs> and the next morning, you know, the next morning I, I asked myself, are you really gonna jump? And uh, so this time I got myself last in a stick of jumpers. And when the green light came on and they're yelling, go, 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 I'm, I'm going up with them, but I don't know if I'm really going out the door or not until I went out the door. That jump was fine. That was a good one. One more jump and that was all for jump week. <clears throat> and we went from jump week, well, then I went back to the 82nd, okay. And the next schooling was um, uh, infantry officer basic. Okay, that's Fort Benning, you learn how to read maps and, and work a compass and do all that sort of stuff. And uh, also we learned, one day I was a student platoon leader. That's the day they instructed us in chemical weapons. And they told us, they handed the platoon leaders, we were, the we were gonna be the demonstrators. It was like a tiny piece, uh, a tiny tube of toothpaste, but it had a needle sticking out of the front of it. In the event the enemy deployed whatever kind of gas that was, you're supposed to use this atropine serrette to stab yourself in the leg. And then they said, you know, you can go slap your, your, your leg and it'll be sort of numb and then you push it in and, and going in fast is better than going in slow. Anyway, so we had to demonstrate that there was no getting around that. They said, okay, we're going to uh, pick a ranger buddy. 
you're going to do everything with the ranger buddy. You're going to be in the hand-to-hand -hand combat pit with the ranger buddy. And cold, it's, it's in December now, cold, it gets cold in Fort Benning. You're going to wrap yourself up in a poncho liner with your ranger buddy and for heat transfer. And everybody thought that doesn't sound very, but anyway, we did it. We had to do it. It was cold and, and you know, so that was the way to go. So the first week was hand-to-hand -hand combat and stuff like that. The second week was in the mountains of Dahlonega, Georgia. Now we're doing patrolling in the mountains. Okay, that was cold up there. And then the third phase of ranger school, they call the swamp phase. It's in Florida. Uh, the, uh, I can't remember where. Anyway, it's in a wet place in Florida. The swamp phase, it's called. I, I gotta tell you, ranger students have drowned in the swamp phase. Uh, what you did with your ranger buddies, uh, everybody put a little luminous, a luminous strip on the back of their hat so the guy behind you could see you. If somebody was a, uh, a, a poor swimmer, they had to put the two strips and one on top so the guy behind, oh, this guy is not a good swimmer. Anyway, ranger school, the swamp phase was uh, cold and wet. Uh, the animals were out, the alligators, the snakes, because it wasn't that cold yet. But anyway, you know, it ended finally. And then we all go back to our units, uh, Ranger, airborne qualified, ready to be a platoon leader. Okay, about that time, Vietnam was starting to heat up, the Gulf of Tonkin and all that. And uh, it did two things. It caused new lieutenants to say, oh my God, is it gonna be over before I can get in it? And it caused senior NCOs and officers to retire. So as a second lieutenant, uh, there was no place for you in Vietnam at that time. The, the American units weren't there, the, the uh, uh, tactical units, so there were no platoon leader slots. So what they did when they, they finally, you had to make first lieutenant before they could do anything with you. But uh, so when we made first lieutenant, a whole bunch of us ran to the personnel and, and volunteered to get there. I lived in a house with uh, three other lieutenants uh, they didn't run to the personnel office as fast as I did. And I thought, I'm going to be in Vietnam before those guys. Ha ha, well, turns out a little thing kicked up in the Dominican Republic where the Cubans were, you know, uh, active. And there were uh, uh, American students at medical school in the Dom Rep uh, who needed to be rescued. So the 82nd went to the Dominican Republic to rescue them. So my roommates who didn't get to the personnel as fast as I did actually saw combat before me because there were Cubans there to fight. Uh, but eventually uh, uh, made first lieutenant and I got orders to go to MACV, Military Assistance Command Vietnam. Now, uh, I knew I had heard of the Vietnamese Airborne Brigade. It was just a brigade of Vietnamese paratroopers, but with US advisors. And I thought to myself, boy, I'd like to get in there, but so would everybody else in my class. That was a plum assignment. Well, I sent the letter from uh, the, Viet the, the Quickie Vietnamese language course. I sent a letter to a major I had known from the 82nd, uh, and he was an advisor with one of those airborne battalions. And I said, hey, can you get me in there? And, and I thought, uh, probably not, but I got a letter back. And it says, yeah, when you finish your orientation at Tonsonut, uh, a jeep is going to pick you up and take you to the airborne brigade. I thought, I can't believe that. Maybe it won't happen, but it did happen. And that uh, the last day of the orientation, a, 
uh, a captain in the, they called them bulletproofs, the airborne camouflage and the red beret. Uh, he came and picked me up and I found that I was gonna be uh, an assistant battalion advisor with one of the Vietnamese battalions. They didn't want, they didn't want some horrible name like trained killers. You know, 60 trained killers were deployed to Vietnam. They say 60 advisors. And as far as advising, you could advise, but they didn't have to take your advice, the Vietnamese commanders. But the incentive for taking our advice was if Americans were with the Vietnamese and they stepped in stuff we could call, the advisors could call American artillery and American air. So generally they did take the advice. Uh, Okay, when was it? January, January the 24th. The Vietnamese airborne, uh, Philippine, Korean, were all involved in the largest search and destroy operation in the war up to that point. The, what the, the, the thing was, the Vietnamese and the Koreans and whoever else were gonna be deposited along the coast of the South China Sea, the Bong Son Plain, and our job is going to be to push the enemy north where they're going to run into the 1st Cavalry Division that had been dro uh, dropped up north. It's kind of like hammer and anvil. You know, we're pushing these guys toward the anvil, or the cab was pushing the guys. Somewhere along the line, we're supposed to meet in the middle, and we did. As we started going up the coast, we started running into little villages along the way, and they were all occupied and not by friendlies. We had to fight our way through every little village and uh, we took casualties. And we'd leave, you know, troops to stay with the, with the wounded and the, and the killed and then we'd keep on moving. And then we came to a village that was not contested. Okay, we got into it, nobody's shooting at us. And uh, we had, you know, it was gonna be one of two things. We either hurt them so bad they left the battlefield or they're sitting big time in the next village up the road. It was option two. As soon as we walked out of there, uh, it was my company, the Vietnamese company commander, my counterpart, his radio operator, uh, a Vietnamese point man, my radio operator, and me. As soon as we stepped out of that village, these mortar rounds, they're in the air and they're coming our way. And uh, they hit right where they were supposed to. That's when my counterpart went down, his radio operator and point man went down my radio operator went down and I went down. We all got hit and we're now we're in a fight. Uh, brave Vietnamese soldiers came out as far as they could and dragged us back behind cover. We could not get artillery or air because the first cavalry's helicopters were occupying the same space that the uh, artillery and air would. So up to that time we, had, we didn't have that. But now I'm hurt, don't know how bad, you know, I could, I could tell certain, because of where the Vietnamese medics are putting bandages, but my team sergeant, uh, Sergeant First Class John Millinder from Counts, Tennessee, he came up to where I was lying, and he said, Trung Huy, Lieutenant, cab helicopters are out of the way, uh, medevacs in route, and then right over me, I saw the exit wound of the round that killed him. And, I, and, and, and uh, as the medics are starting to pull me away, you know, I'm yelling, Trung Shi, Sergeant, and they're all saying, Chet Roy, Chet Roy. Chet Roy means dead already. And uh, anyway, I got medevaced out of there, 
and uh, the, the tempo of combat had picked up so bad that the evacuation hospitals didn't have room for everybody. So the very next day, uh, I was evacuated with a bunch of others. We went to the Philippines. First morning in the Philippines, I wake up, we're in a barracks type building. There's wounded all along the far side and I'm in a line of wounded all along this side. And then the uh, uh, white bunch of white coats came in and that was triage. They looked at the wounds and they decided going to Japan for more war or treatment, gonna recover and go right back to the war or go back to the States. And they're going down the far side and you hear people screaming because those bandages were being pulled off wounds that were inflicted like the day before. And it was, uh, it, it, they, they were hurting people, the good guys. Anyway, now they're coming down my side, ripping off bandages, people are screaming. And when they got to me and I had the biggest one on my leg, you know, that came off and I'm sure I screamed. But then the doctors came and they said, looked at me and said, CONUS. That stood for Continental United States. They were telling me I was going back home. And I was pretty glad about that, as a matter of fact. Uh, so we left the next day. We're on C-130s, rigged for stretchers and all that stuff. So I got back to the States. I was in the hospital at Fort Belvoir because uh, my family was in Arlington and all that. Uh, I needed light duty and infantry branch knew that when I called them. They sent me to the Army War College as an admin officer. So I'm in the admin office of the Army War College and I'm surrounded by civilians that have been doing the job forever. They didn't need me there. There were only two soldiers and they were in classified document control. So, okay, I'm going home every weekend. That's only a two hour drive to, to uh, Arlington and I'm hanging out with the boys and whatever. Well, funny thing happened. I was on the captain's list by that time. The general, two-star general, commandant of the War College, he had a driver and a PIO that he brought with him from Fort Gordon uh, when he was the commander, commanding general Fort Gordon. And they came and checked me out. And they must have thought I was okay because they said, you know, the general's looking for two new aides, a captain and a lieutenant. Why don't you apply for it? And I thought, that'll ruin my weekends back in the, you know? But I said, what the hell, I'll, I'll interview because I probably won't get the job. I got the job. So I was the aide to the commandant of the War College for about 16 months, and uh, he was a really great guy. He got orders to go back to Washington, so he called his aides together, me and the lieutenant, and he said, uh, well, he told me, Lieutenant Bryant, that was the lieutenant junior aide, he's, he needs to go to Vietnam, I think he knows that. Well, what do you wanna do? I said, I'd like to go back to Fort Benning and the Airborne Committee. He said, that's an incredibly stupid thing to wish for. He said, I'll get you to Fort Benning, but you're gonna to go to the advanced course. So ahead of my contemporaries, I went to the next infantry advanced course. And I thought for sure I'd flunk out because the first uh, thing we were learning about was deployment of tactical nukes on the battlefield. And you had to do things with the slide rule. I did what I had to do and I passed that. And that was the scariest part Okay, so now I'm in the advanced course. It started as a whole bunch of captains and a small bunch of majors. It finished with a whole bunch of majors and a small bunch of captains. So uh, then it's time to pick where you want to go back to Vietnam. Everybody was going back to Vietnam. And I, uh, I picked uh, the first calf. 
and uh, and I got the first cap. So now that brings me to the second deployment after the advanced course. Joined the first cav. They were way up north. I wanted a company in the worst way, but they had four perfectly competent company commanders. So I was made the supply guy, the logistics guy, the S4. And uh, then about three months later, the entire cav moved from up north to third corps, right around Saigon. And uh, as the log guy, I helped move the whole uh, battalion out. And I took the last plane in and when I got down uh, down south, the battalion commander says, Rocky, you're going to the field. I thought, my God, I must have messed up. He said, no, the Delta Company commander was on the majors list, his number came up, he's out, you're in. So I got Delta Company, 2nd Battalion, 8th Cav. My company had good morale. I love those guys. We had reunions for years and years after the war was over. Uh, I, I, I started my second career with Fairfax County Sheriff's Office and uh, I had already made it up to lieutenant before they found me. Hey, Skipper, this is so-and-so. I didn't want them to find me because I was the CO. I'm sure I pissed off some people and I didn't want to hear about it at a reunion, but they stayed on my case. So I finally went to the first Angry Skipper reunion in Charleston, South Carolina. and. Uh, Nobody really had a beef, two guys did. One guy came up with me, a big, big bearded man from Oregon. And he said, I'm pissed off at you. And I said, okay, why is that? He said, you didn't send me to see Bob Hope. And me and him still <laughs> laugh about that. But the other guy, we were setting up an ambush. We weren't quite set up. The bad guys came along. This poor guy got shot in the leg. And you know, of course we engaged with the enemy that was coming up the trail before us. Now he came up to me at another reunion and he said, how about when I got wounded, you wouldn't let the helicopter come in and the medic had to overrule you. I said, time out. There's no way in hell the medic, the chaplain, or anybody else overrules the commander on the ground. If you got out by helicopter, is because I got you out by helicopter. And after that, I was, oh. <laughs> anyway, we had a lot of good reunions, a lot of good guys. And uh, that was the best thing I've, I've done in my life, was be company commander of Delta 2A. I told the guys, yeah, I've never been comfortable with Fort Benning's uh, concept of ambushing. They wanted the larger group, let's say a company, and then a smaller group, a squad, or maybe even a platoon to go out on the kill zone. And then after they, you know, either killed something, well, let's say it was a success. Using Claymore mines, there's some dead guys out there, but we don't know how big, how big that enemy body was. There could be a ton of people behind those that were killed. I didn't like that idea. Uh, and then guys trying to get their way back into the friendly perimeter could get accidentally killed doing that. So I told my guys, I'm gonna make you a deal. We're gonna do ambushes in company strength. That's unheard of because nobody believes that 120 guys can be quiet in the jungle and the smokers won't smoke and all that. I said, you're gonna to have to have absolute noise and light discipline. If you see a buddy trying to light a cigarette, jump on him, because he's, he's trying to get you killed. Uh, same with any noise, no smoking, I mean no smoking and no laughing and no light. They liked that idea. So what we did on a straight, first of all, 
We, the, it was search and destroy was the name of the game. We never wanted to stop for the night if we weren't on a trail where we could ambush. I had two ideas for the trails. You, first of all, you want one that looks like it's been used. You got Ho Chi Minh sandal prints, you got canvas shoe prints, you got bicycle tracks, you know, going down the trail. And uh, uh, if we had a trail junction, I put one platoon on one trail and the other platoon on the other, and the third platoon would lock around behind them. So we were in a perimeter. If we bit the nose off an enemy that was much larger than us and he attacked, we were already in a defensive perimeter. The guys liked it. Let me just say, we got very, very good at ambushing. So I'll jump ahead because I'm almost through. When I finished my company command time, I took an R&R &R at the Hong Kong. I came back, I was supposed to be the battalion S2, but I was told you're not gonna be the S2. You're gonna go up to division headquarters. And I went up to division headquarters and the, the G3 said, what you're here for is put together a class on ambushing. You're gonna to go to every CAV fire base and you're gonna discuss ambushing and put out these ideas that uh, I thought, my God, the fact that we were doing company-sized ambushes, Benning's not gonna like that. Well, Benning didn't care. We were killing people and that was our job. So I went to the different fire bases, you know, pitching ambush as the best tactic we had against the enemy. They were putting a trip flare in the middle of the kill zone. What does that mean? You're only going to kill half of what comes along. You know, uh, anyway, I wasn't telling them to do things. I didn't have the authority to tell them to do things, but I recommended things. And then, uh, you know, that's the last job I had in Vietnam. Captain Ambush was the nickname I had. Actually, after I retired, I felt like I pretty much remember everything that went on. And I thought we did good, so I decided I, I'll try to write a book. I got the Writer's Digest and I looked, and uh, first thing I learned was don't send anything to any publisher unless it's invited. Second thing I learned was the big publishing houses wanted you to have, what they wanted to get it from an agent. So I found this small Hellgate Press, it's in Oregon. They uh, specialize in certain different types of books and uh, the military memoir was one of them. To date, I got 71 reviews on Amazon. Okay, 69 and there were five star. One of them is four star, and some jerk gave me a three star review. <laughs> but it sold, it sold, uh, it, it did what I wanted. That's my story, it's out in the public, and uh, I'm proud of it.